You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, hello. You can hear me. Fantastic. Welcome, everybody. We'll get started. Thanks so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, this is fantastic turnout. And yeah, this is great. How's the weather? Amazing. <laughs> Look, just wanted to start the evening with a welcome to country. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I pay my respects to the elders past and present and emerging, and also to the Aboriginal elders of the other communities who, who may be here today. I also wanted to acknowledge uh, many in the space industry from years past who have worked away tirelessly without a national agency and those people devote a lot of time, passion, and some of them are here tonight, Kerry, uh, Donna and Alice, and now we have a space agency, thanks largely to people such as them. Also just want to thank... <laughs> thank Rami up the front here. Uh, Rami is from Space Australia, an online platform for creating a community around space and sharing what's happening. He'll be tweeting tonight with the hashtag Hello Earth, so if anyone else would like to make a comment, you can, you can use that. Also, just want to say thanks to the uh, Space Association Australia, sorry, Australian Space Association, Peter and Ash, who are here tonight filming, so thank, thanks to those guys. If you do need a toilet, there's one over at the Art Centre, but otherwise, welcome. <laughs> My name is uh, Thomas Gooch, and I'm the founder of Office of Other Spaces. We are a landscape-focused company, and we have expertise in landscape architecture and satellite remote sensing, so earth science. We are the regional Australian coordinator of the, of the Moon Village Association, and we bring a landscape-sensitive uh, approach to space. Now, this is because we're passionate about nature, and nature actually extends all across the universe. Uh, and we want to go to a habitable planet. We would love the human species to do that. But we want to make sure we do it sensitively. And when we get there, we're sensitive to the landscape. And along the way, we don't cause mass destruction to other landscapes there. Which is why we've created this event uh, to stimulate this discussion. So the Moon Village Association is a not-for-profit organisation established in 2017. As I said, we're the regional uh, Australian coordinator. They're building a moon village community on Earth prior to actually getting to the moon itself. So that's about creating community and addressing these questions. Culture. What culture do we take to the moon? Mining. How do we mine the moon? Should we? Uh, architecture. Robotics. Engineering. So if you're interested, you can find resources on their website through white papers and recordings from yearly symposiums they run or otherwise. Uh, and the Moon Village Association has a presence at UN COPUS. So they actually have a lot of input into shaping policy uh, in Vienna there. So get involved if you're interested. So welcome, everyone. It's a real delight to have everyone here after lots of planning and to have the amazing speakers. Tonight is around the real payload of sending a camera to the moon to live stream a whole Earth. We're making that happen, the project started, so everything we talk about tonight is in that context, but you also learn about the moon and the industry and what's happening through law and culture in that regards. 
So I'd like to introduce now Madeline Bedansky. She's the uh, Moon Village Association Outreach Coordinator. So she's heading up the communication of the payload from Melbourne. Uh, so I'll leave our amazing speakers here for the moment. And if Madeline, you'd like to come up? Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Um, and I'd like to thank all of the other amazing speakers for speaking today, uh, all women panel, and of course, um, Annie, who will be moderating the discussion. So firstly, it's important to note that this is the Moon Village's first payload, and uh, it's run solely by volunteers that are institutional members, and we answered a call for participation to get involved in the project. It's um, speaking volumes, I think, for the community of the Moon Village Association, and also space in general. And um, yeah, I encourage everybody to check them out if you haven't already. So the MVA is being led by a project manager, Lisa. And uh, the project is currently nearly at the end of phase one. What we've achieved so far is really, really encouraging. The team has compiled a ton of research into cameras that would be suitable for the lunar surface for rovers. And um, we are looking at establishing which one is best for the payload. The research has led to institutional members in having discussions with a company called SEN, who will be providing the camera, which is fantastic. And we have a number of tasks being undertaken by the team, for example, creating VR, uh, looking at real moon data, uh, science feasibility studies for the ongoing task of risk management. And this is comprehensive and being updated as the project evolves. Uh, recently, members of the MVA payload team attended a workshop in Japan which was really positive and the project passed MDR. Institutional members have also been in discussion with primers in terms of launching to touch base and discuss what a collaboration would look like and we are still having those discussions. Uh, so the next step is to continue with these discussions like what we're having today, complete further feasibility studies and research and the ongoing risk assessment and look at developing our outreach team further. So it's all extremely exciting and very humbling experience and project to be involved with and would be more than happy to discuss this further with anyone after the panel. So I will leave you in their capable hands and over to, I believe, Thomas. <laughs> Great, so there, there you go, there's an introduction. Um, we've all been really excited by tonight and thanks again everyone for turning up. Uh, yeah, the idea of a pavilion is to get together and have a discussion and to open up dialogue and the speakers we've got here tonight in front of us definitely have some dialogue and something to say. So what we're going to do is give each speaker 10 minutes. Uh, we'll cycle through over 50 minutes and then we're going to at the end of that have a discussion where we'd like to engage you all in any questions or thoughts that you might have and see what comes. So we'll start with Alice Gorman, AKA Dr. Space Junk. And I'll just read out Alice's bio here. So Alice is internationally recognized leader in the field of space archeology. span Her research focus on, focuses on the archeology span and heritage of space exploration, including space junk, planetary landing sites, off earth mining, rocket launch pads and antennas. She's an associate professor at Flinders University in Adelaide and a heritage consultant with over 25 years experiencing working with indigenous communities in Australia, 
In collaboration with NASA and the Chapman University, she is conducting the first archaeological study of the International Space Station, and her book, Dr. Space Junk Versus the Universe, Archaeology in the Future, won the NIB Literary Award People's Choice for Nonfiction and Mulgr <laughs> John Mulvaney. So she's very accomplished, is basically. <laughs> so it is a fantastic book, and yeah, it's great to have Alice here. So thanks, Alice, and here you go. Thanks, Thomas, and everyone. Um, there are actually a few seats up the front here. If anybody down the back wanted to come and sit a bit closer or had tired legs or anything. And blankets and things. <laughs> I must say, this is a gorgeous setting. It's really lovely to be out on. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to you tonight about the lunar surface. And I'm actually going to read my notes because I don't want to forget any of the connections that I'd like to make tonight. So, since the first successful lunar landing mission, which was the USSR's Lunar 2 in 1959, the Moon has become littered with human material culture, which is evidence of our engagement with the Moon from many nations. And this is over 190 tonnes of material that includes things like landing modules, rovers, experiments, and just rubbish all lying on the surface of the Moon. And now we have this incredible interest on commercial operators returning to the moon for commercial reasons and to maybe make bases or settlements. And people in the space community are talking, finally talking about all of these, the Apollo, Rover, Luna, all of these sites as a heritage that needs to be taken seriously. So this is obviously something I'm very interested in, but what I want to talk about more is two underrated features of the lunar surface, and these are the shadows cast by craters and by all of these abandoned human artefacts, and the dust that preserves the trace fossils of the famous footprints and the rover tracks across the lunar surface. So these shadows that are on the lunar surface are both tangible and intangible. They're cast on the surface by raised objects, and they're also created by the texture of indentations into the dust on the surface. The interplay of these shadows and dusts creates a unique, and I'm going to, I had to get Donna to coach me in Italian, a unique chiaroscuro, which is basically the contrast between light and dark. So I want to look a little bit more about how this dust got to be on the surface of the moon. So the currently accepted theory of the origins of the moon are that about 4.5 billion years ago there was a collision with the earth and the moon was basically ejected. Then a little bit later than that there was a period called the late heavy bombardment in which the solar system was going wild, there were planets and asteroids and things bouncing all over the place and a lot of planets and other bodies were heavily impacted by meteorites and asteroids. And in this process, the, moon, the surface of the moon was pulverised, creating a thick dust layer and also creating little glass particles from these collisions. So there's a crater from this period called the Shackleton Crater, which is located at the lunar south pole and it's 3.6 billion years old. One of the things that makes the Shackleton Crater interesting is that the shadows within it 
are among the oldest permanent shadows in the entire solar system. The shadows cast by the Shackleton Crater are two billion years old. And what this means is no matter how the moon rotates or the angle of the sun changes, parts of that, that crater interior are always in shadow. What makes this interesting is because shadows just like this is where we find volatiles like hydrogen and water preserved. This is where the water ice that everybody wants to go back to the moon to mine, this is where this stuff is located. Interestingly, we, I was thinking about whether we have permanent shadows on Earth and we don't have any craters left from this late heavy bombardment period. I think the oldest crater we have is 2.2 billion years old, the recently discovered Yarra Bubba crater in Western Australia. But shadows on Earth don't really work like lunar shadows. So the quality of these shadows is really different to Earth. First of all, there's no atmosphere that refracts the light. So this is what makes it possible for us to actually see while we're in shadow, like reading a book under the umbrella, your beach umbrella at the beach. On the moon, shadows are very, very dark and black. Temperature inside them falls radically. That you can see a little bit because earthshine and sunshine reflected off that dust surface will cast a little bit of light into the shadows. But this is really only a feeble illumination so I've been puddling about in the billions of years ago category, but I want to scoot up to the future to 50 years ago. 50 years ago, or a bit over 50 years ago, on the 21st of July 1969, Neil Armstrong descended from the lunar module and he said some famous words, but I'm not interested in those words. He also said something else really interesting. He said, it's quite dark here in the shadow and a little hard for me to see if I have a good footing. So it was actually stepping onto the lunar surface into something that had never occurred there before. He was stepping into the shadow of an artefact, the shadow of the landing module. And then he and the other astronaut had to actually unpack all their equipment in shadow in the dark. And what they discovered was if your hands or equipment were inside that deep part of the shadow, they were practically invisible and you had to adjust your eyes as you moved between the shadow and the light. So this was a critical part in how they adapted to the lunar surface. But there was more too. So we've all seen pictures of that footprint on the moon's surface, the ridged surface of the boot. So one of the things that astronauts had to do was figure out what was going on with lunar dust. And there were basically two main theories at this time. One was Thomas Gold's deep dust theory, which held that the, the layer of dust might be so thick the lunar module would actually sink into it. The other one was the fairy castle theory of Van Horn and Hapke. And in this theory, which they um, came up with after looking how, at how the lunar surface um, backscattered light, it was, the lunar dust was a very porous structure that would collapse the minute you stepped on it, as we saw in the blueprint. So this is how they described it. So they said, if examined with a stereoscopic microscope so that the three-dimensional structure can be seen, the surface of fine powder is seen to consist of towers leaning at crazy angles and connected by lazy bridges, lacy bridges <laughs> and flying buttresses. Van Horn and I called these structures fairy castles to evoke an image of a mysterious landscape. And I think they did that but remember, this is all at the microscopic level. 
So these very distinct qualities of light and shadow actually come from the way the light is reflected by the, the particular character of the fairy castle, castle dust structure. There's also a lot more going on with lunar dust. For example, as we now know, lunar dust is toxic if you inhale it. We know that it's extremely adhesive because it's been um, electrostatically charged by constant bombardment with cosmic rays and other high energy particles. So it sticks to things. It's very sharp, so it abrades things. And pretty much um, all of these characteristics mean that as John Young, who was the commander of the Apollo 16 mission said, lunar dust is the number one problem for returning to the moon. But I think, of, I think of this dust in all those photographs that we see of the Apollo missions, over 600 images and videos that were taken uh, over the course of the six missions. And I'm sure you've all seen them. So there'll be a, a, a sort of a, a grayscale surface and there'll be a piece of equipment or another astronaut and you'll see the actual shadow of the astronaut taking the photograph, um, the, which is still cast on the surface. So do you know these photos I've made? I mean, have you seen these ones? So the, the astronaut is there, the shadow astronaut is there, but absent. And for me, it's really easy now. I look at those images and it's like that shadow astronaut is frozen in time. They're still, still somehow up there on the surface of the moon. But the one thing that we know is that there are, are neither humans nor human shadows currently on the lunar surface. But the shadows are still very active things. So across all of those lunar landing sites and all of the other places where humans have landed on the moon, the shadows have become an active part of the site. So the electric charge means that they jump around and move around as the terminator, the dividing line between day and night passes over them. And, the, and they're like sundials. The sites become sundials even though there's not actually anyone there or anyone moving around it. So. When I think of these shadows, I think they're like, they're like signs on the surface that we can read. And these signs can mean many things. So for people wanting to mine the moon, the shadows are signs that there is water ice there that is a valuable resource. For the astronauts, the shadows were signs of the nature of the dust and all the scientific speculation around what that was like. For lunar conspiracy theorists, the shadows are evidence that the astronauts were not there, were not ever there. But for the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a lunar satellite that has been imaging the surface since 2009, the shadows are evidence that the Apollo landing sites are there because they can literally see the shadows cast by the artifacts on the surface. So I want to finish by reading you a quote from Junishiro Tanizaki's famous 1924 volume in praise of shadows. It's not actually about the moon, it's about Japanese architecture. But for me, I think it really evokes the emotional experience of engaging with the lunar surface, whether standing on it or remotely as we do. And, well, I will just, I will, these are the words of Junishiro Tanizaki. In temple architecture, the main room stands at a considerable distance from the garden. So dilute is the light there that no matter what the season, on fair days or cloudy, morning, midday or evening, the pale white glow scarcely varies. And the shadows at the, at the interstices of the ribs seem strangely immobile, 
as if dust collected in the corners had become part of the paper itself. I blink in uncertainty at this dreamlike luminescence, feeling as though some misty film were blunting my vision. The light from the pale white paper, powerless to dispel the heavy darkness of the alcove, is instead repelled by the darkness, creating a world of confusion where dark and light are indistinguishable. Have not you yourselves sensed a difference in the light that suffuses such a room, a rare tranquility not found in ordinary light? Have you never felt a sort of fear in the face of the ageless, a fear that in that room you might lose all consciousness of the passage of time, that untold years might pass and upon emerging you should find that you had grown old and grey? Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Fantastic. I would now like to introduce Gabrielle Harris, sitting next to Alice. The founder and managing director of company Interchange, Gabrielle supports and advises... How's that? Is that better? Okay. Gabrielle supports and advises businesses on strategy, culture change, learning and development and ex executive coaching. She specialises in the co-creation of innovation. Sorry. She specialises in the co-creation of innovative yet practical solutions designed in response to the complex challenges faced by both organisations and executive teams. Gabrielle and her team designed bespoke programs grounded in organisational strategy, yet delivered with creative content that speaks both to hearts and minds. Her work in this space has taken across Europe, Asia, North America and Australia to coach executive team members. Personally, really excited to have Gabrielle here tonight in the context of culture and what culture do we take to the moon because this can tend to drive everything. So please put your hands together for Gabrielle. Thanks, Thomas. Hello. Well, I think Alice kind of got this wrapped, so... <laughs> Absolutely fascinating and excellent. Um, so, as Thomas said, my name's Gabrielle. Uh, the organisation that I established is Interchange and um, where we focus is in culture. And Thomas approached me and said, would you be interested in uh, having a conversation about your knowledge in culture and how that might apply to space exploration? And when he said that, I said, I don't know what I would say about that. <laughs> um, but over the last few months, I've been doing a lot of research and having some conversations with some really fabulous people, including those sitting next to me today. And um, I've realised that actually there's a lot to be said about what we know about culture and how that translates here and how that might apply as we continue to explore space. Um, and in that research I was thinking about uh, my background in psychology and how we can think of uh, organisations and how they formed. Uh, if we move from, I guess, thinking way back, you're probably more the expert on this one than me, but from hunter-gatherer to farmer. And when we moved into this farmer era and we had excess, we could start to trade. And that trading made us more successful in a way um, as humans. 
It allowed us to be able to have uh, stronger diets, be stable in one place. It, it certainly increased our lifespan. Um, and over time, those kind of family businesses then moved into, uh, I guess, global trade. So if we think of the East India Company, whether you see it as the British or the Dutch coming first, different argument. Um, it's really fascinating to see how globalisation took a hold and we started to look to commodities that we could trade and we looked to bigger and bigger and get more and take more and uh, we started a, I guess, what's now considered as more masculine traits of competition and uh, resource extraction. And then over years, we've continued with that in businesses now. Um, it doesn't really matter whether it's a localised business or a global business. We tend to have had a very strong belief that organisations, with the exception of not-for-profits, are about returning shareholder value. How do we do that? We continue to take more. We continue to get more, to mine more, to extract more. And that is how we actually continue to drive financial return. Financial return is how we connect our status in society. Um, now, that's of course not in every society. There's certainly plenty of society, human societies um, throughout the world still now that don't necessarily have those same industrialised commodity mindsets. But certainly when we start to think about space exploration, many of those behaviours or ways of being, ways of acting and connecting are coming from those roots. So we need to start to consider how is that actually going to play out for us as we have more privatised exploration. Um, there will be some further discussion later about the, the legalised nature of that because um, that's something that I've become really interested in trying to understand. What actually is it that will or won't um, uh, prevent private entities from continuing to explore without regulation? Uh, we can look to some recent... Uh, my children just arrived, they're very cute. Uh, we can look to some recent um, activity by Musk, who has, who has, as I'm sure many of you here would know, uh, demonstrated more of a connection or a commitment to space exploration through SpaceX and shooting things like cars into space. Uh, and and it's, it's fascinating, I think, to consider, now that we're moving to more privatised models, what is that actually going to look like for us? How is that going to um, be protected in the longer term if we don't consider what are the aspects that make up culture now and how will that translate later? Um, Goldman Sachs, I think it was in 2017 or 2018, actually put it out there that the first trillionaire will be the person that mines an asteroid. And that thinking came from the basis of platinum. Platinum's worth a lot. You can potentially get uh, this possibility of landing perhaps an autonomous drill, some extraction. And if you could get that platinum back down to Earth, that could be $50 billion is the predicted estimate. Now, that makes it very appealing for entities to start to consider, well, how can I make that so? And that's certainly playing out right now. 
Um, we have the, um, in some ways, privilege of working with some of the world's biggest mining companies and they're all on it. It's becoming more of a um, likelihood than it is something that was psychologically very impossible to consider not that long ago. Um, Rio Tinto has recently formed an as association with the Australian Space Agency to start thinking about how can you use autonomous drilling and get things up to space quicker and cheaper and start to mine quickly. Um, and what I think is going to be really important for us is to think about what makes up culture and that therefore how can we use that thinking before we start just going and raping and pillaging what's in space um, but think about, sure, human exploration is a part of who we are. We're going to continue to explore. But how do we do it in a, in a way that's not going to impact the planet in the way that, well, impact, I suppose, a much broader entity rather than just the planet? And um, those two ultimate components are the system, so the governance, the, the legal components, the, the processes, the policies that we put in play, and the behaviour. And the behaviour that has led us to so much of the exploration historically has been competition. It has been, um, uh, I guess, power. It has been money. Um, and if we want to continue in that way, we need to accept that we're going to do some damage. Um, from a behavioural standpoint, we've got to consider what, is the, what are the behaviours that we are now starting to talk about wanting. Um, it's... It's incredible to be a part of this panel today and see that it's all women and to have women who are thinking about forward-looking um, care for space rather than how can we take the, the most out of it. Um, it it's a real honour to be a part of that community. Uh, but I think from a cultural standpoint, what we need to start to talk about and consider now are those two very distinct but interconnected components, the system and the behaviour. And absolutely our, our legal framework will help with that. But the legal framework in and of itself is going to be determined by the attitudes or the beliefs that we have about that. Um, and I'm, I'm really keen today for us to continue this conversation um, around what we think are the right behaviours, what we think is the right system to put in place that we can all get behind because um, space is owned by the public, it's owned by all of us and um, it's particularly owned by the generations that are coming. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to have the kids here today to be part of this conversation uh, and I think more of that needs to happen. We need to consider how what we're doing now is going to impact the generations of the future and we also need to consider how is it that we can think beyond profit and start looking towards meaning and purpose and consider that as part of our, our, space, our space discussion moving forward. That is it from me. Thanks, Gabrielle. Often a perspective that's left out in the space narrative, but a very, as you can see, very important one. Mm. Next we, up we have Keridwin Dovey. Keridwin writes fiction and contributes essays to The New Yorker, The Monthly and Wired magazine. She has written about who has the power to imagination our space futures, the pitfalls of space, resource race 
led by the corporations and the mysteries of moon dust and Australia's responsibilities on the moon. Her essays have been selected for the Best Australian Science Writing 2019, the Best American Science and Nature Writing 2018, and the Best Australian Essays 2015. Her most recent work, book, sorry, her most recent book is Inner Worlds, Outer Spaces, The Working Lives of Others, which contains profiles of several Australians with fascinating space careers, including Donna Lawler here, Alice Gorman, who are also speaking and have spoken. <laughs> And please put your hands together for Karidwan Dovey. Thanks, Thomas. Luckily, Alice and I made a pact that we were going to both read our talks. So, In the early 1980s, the American Frank White, a longtime fan of space settlement, was thinking about what it might be like for future space settlers to see Earth hanging in their sky day after day, and whether that sight would ever become routine. He found a couple of astronauts' descriptions of how they'd felt while in space on looking back at Earth. It wasn't something that had been much detailed. Often, it was the harrowing side to their jobs as astronauts that was emphasised to heighten the prestige of their profession as astronaut. Yet when these astronauts had some rare time to float and to gaze, some of them later described to Frank White experiencing feelings of bliss and an intuitive understanding of Earth as a unified planet rather than as a patchwork of national identities. White coined a term for this, the overview effect. And in the decades since, the overview effect has become part of the lingo of anybody interested in space and also one of the main moral justifications used for why it's important to get as many people into space as possible. Certainly seeing images of Earth from space initiated a shift in environmental consciousness in the 60s. Yet even this new perspective on our planet hasn't in fact helped us to slow or prevent catastrophic climate change in that same time period. And in recent years, as space has been commercialized and there's a financial motive for many private space companies to have the public support their plans, the overview effect has been promoted even more enthusiastically. Like in the 2018 National Geographic series, One Strange Rock, in which astronauts describe quasi-religious feelings while gazing at Earth from space. Many said that seeing Earth from space made them better people. We went to the moon as technicians, said astronaut Edgar Mitchell. We returned as humanitarians. I hate to be the one to point this out, but some of them in fact returned as depressed alcoholics. Yuri Gagarin and Buzz Aldrin among them and Mitchell went on to become convinced that aliens have been visiting Earth for decades. The overview effect, while on paper a lovely idea, is also very much bound to the cultural context of white American males, since that's what the majority of astronauts have been. So we really have no idea what effect it would have on most of the world's population to see Earth from space. Each culture or religion might have a completely different response 
not all of them positive. For some, the overview effect might trigger a crisis of faith or space psychosis or hopelessness as people become overwhelmed by the existential challenges of seeing Earth in that way. There's also the uncomfortable question at the heart of any claim that gazing at Earth from space will make us better people. Who is doing the looking? And if they're collecting visual data as they gaze, what will it be used for in reality? This is the dystopian underbelly of the overview effect. And new forms of surveillance in space are already being deployed. Take, for instance, the new stratospheric satellites, or stratolites, that a company called Worldview Enterprises is already launching into space. The stratolite, essentially, is a surveillance device. It has a camera on it that's so accurate, once it's been carried up to the edge of space by a stratospheric balloon, it can tell whether a person on the ground is holding a shovel or a gun. When Worldview begins selling that visual data from its stratolites this year, guess who the first official buyers will be? The US Department of Defense, of course, and the major oil and gas companies who want to use the data to monitor and extend their operations on Earth. But let's step away from the politics of the present for a moment and back a bit in time. In case you've ever wondered, outer space was first called outer space by Alexander von Humboldt in 1845. He was a Prussian naturalist who's widely considered to be the first nature writer in the sense that we understand the form today. Unlike the dry, almost unreadable tomes of his scientific colleagues, Humboldt wrote about his nature expeditions around the globe with a poetic glint in his eye and with a desire to express through his writing his whole earth thinking. He believed that science, art, and the emotions should and could go hand in hand when it came to understanding nature. What speaks to the soul, he said, escapes our measurements. Humboldt formed a revolutionary understanding of the interconnections between everything on Earth, an early precursor to the Gaia hypothesis of the globe as a self-regulating organism. He was the first to have the insight that nature is expressed in similar ways in regions with the same climates around the globe. And his was a very critical eye when it came to human life. He was an outspoken critic of slavery and of the travesties of colonization and extractive economies around the world and how they led to war and environmental collapse. He also studied astronomy and imagined, in his own words, a bleak future of humankind's eventual expansion into space when humans would spread their lethal mix of vice, greed, violence and ignorance across other planets, leaving distant stars barren and ravaged. I think it's time for ordinary citizens like me and you to stop letting ourselves be hoodwinked by companies who like to wax lyrical about the overview effect 
and instead ask the difficult questions about what social and environmental justice in space might really look like. The kinds of questions Alexander von Humboldt might have asked if he were alive today. It seems that we're stuck in the same zero-sum thinking that stops us dealing with the disaster of climate change. Space industry jobs and profit at any cost versus sustainability and ethical leadership in space. Where are the visions for interaction in space based, for instance, on indigenous knowledge systems? Like the author of Sand Talk, Tyson Yanka-Porter's description of a web of connections between terrestrial communities and country in the sky. He writes, there are living rocks up there as there are down here. And the dark spaces between the stars are not a vacuum but solid lands that have mass and sentience, reflecting places and times on Earth. Wendell Berry, the American environmentalist and farmer, has noted that people exploit what they have merely concluded to be of value, but they defend what they love. Perhaps if the moon and the rest of space can be redefined as part of nature, we might move from the cooler-hued emotion of gaping at them from a distance towards the more passionate feeling of love. Then those outer space places can become sites of resistance as the wildest places on Earth have always been to encroachment by us humans. Nature, by definition, does not refer only to living things. It refers to the physical world and everything in it that is not human or made by humans. Landscapes, rocks, geological deep time, all these things exist in space as on Earth. And for once in our history, we have the chance to defend the natural wilderness of outer space from our worst impulses before the destruction begins. We also have the good fortune of having developed our ethical thinking so that many of us now understand that nature has an intrinsic worth and the right to exist outside of any benefit it may bring to humans. If landforms on Earth have an intrinsic right to exist, surely the same should go for landforms off Earth. If we have considered granting certain environmental objects the legal right to sue for their own preservation, for instance, rivers in America, India, and New Zealand, which have been granted a form of personhood and accompanying rights, then might we do the same for the moon's South Pole crater before all of its water ice is plundered, or for asteroids before they are mined out of existence? I don't mean to be a buzzkill by poking a hole in the overview effect but I am asking you not to let those with the most to gain from industrializing space brainwash you into believing that they are doing anything up there for humanitarian reasons alone. In fact, I believe that the true value of getting a citizen satellite with video capabilities in space, as the Moon Village Association is planning, is not to give us all a warm, fuzzy overview effect. It's to give us a way to hold accountable anyone operating up there, since most of these companies are cut from the same Silicon Valley cloth and operate under extreme secrecy.
We need independent ways of monitoring space activities and recording concrete visual evidence of wrongdoing. Without that information, we are flying blind and we'll have no chance of stopping the extension of surveillance capitalism off Earth, nor of preventing space from becoming yet another destroyed and lost wilderness. Thanks, Gridwin. That's fantastic. And uh, a lot of food for thought there. And uh, if you don't know Alexander von Humboldt, then you must. He's a great man. Up next, we have Donna Lawler. Donna is the co-founder and principal at Azimuth Advisory and is a member of the International Institute of Space Lawyers. She's an experienced commercial lawyer specialising in complex transactions involving space activities. Over almost 20 years in the space industry, she's been an advisor of a range of commercial space organisations, including operations of geostationary and low-Earth orbit satellite constellations, spaceport operators and launch service providers. In particular, she has had key involvement in the build, launch and insurance programs for six geostationary satellites on behalf of Optus and its parent company, Singtel. Donna has published joint papers on space law topics internationally and has presented on commercial space law topics in Australia, including the International Space University's Southern Hemisphere Space Program. Also in Austria, Canada, Denmark, Finland, South Africa, Taiwan, United States, and now M Pavilion. So, put your hands together for Donna. Thank you so much, Thomas. And thank you, thank you for having me. And it's such an honour to be here on a female for the first time. <laughs> um, I, uh, after talking very briefly to Gabrielle at the beginning, uh, I, I changed the way that I was going to start this discussion because her first question to me, which she just reiterated, was, uh, who is going to stop these companies from doing whatever they like? Who is going to regulate that? Can't they just do what they like? And that reiterates uh, the question, um, reiterates a, a common belief, not saying that you share that belief, but, but many uh, purport to say that space is a wild, wild west and that it is essentially a legal vacuum. Uh, well, my, uh, what I'm here to say to you today is that it's absolutely not a legal vacuum. There is a lot of law and uh, there is a lot of law that has come out of some of the darkest period of human history, not the darkest, but a dark period of human history, which is the Cold War period, where we had uh, Russia and the United States in particular um, at each other's, almost at the verge of being at each other's throats. And what emerged out of that from the point of view of space, because we're in the middle of the space race, was miraculously a form of cooperation that you could never have predicted, really. Uh, they actually reached international agreement on international treaties. So in the year that I was born, and I'm now giving a lot away here, <laughs> 1967, the Outer Space Treaty came into being, and there were um, the Outer Space Treaty enshrines a number of principles which I, I still regard as almost miraculous today. And so they're, they're almost the antidote to the dystopian 
view that you're fearing, which I certainly wouldn't discount because with any um, technology can be used for very dark purposes and very good purposes. We've, we've found from so many, so many examples, which I won't reiterate now. But out of that time came the Outer Space Treaty, under which we enshrined such principles as uh, their, the space is free for use for all, they use the word mankind, I'll say humankind, for all humankind. Uh, the uh, freedom of exploration. There is a rule against national appropriation. So we've all seen the famous image of the United States putting its flag into the to the moon, and some believe the United States was claiming the moon. In fact, they were not, and they were very explicit at the time. We're not claiming sovereignty over the moon, because they, um, in 1967, the agreement had been made. We are not claiming any national appropriation. Uh, Furthermore, um, under the, the Outer Space Treaty, um, which is declared space to be um, exploration use for, for, for all humankind and as the province of all humankind, um, the clear intention is that space shall be used for peaceful purposes. So we know that there's a lot of military use of space in various kinds, and yet these treaties express very clearly the Outer Space Treaty and the following treaties, ending with the Moon Agreement in 1979, that the, the intention underlying them all is, is the use of space for pe peaceful purposes. Um, and then one of the last principles I'll just mention from the Outer Space Treaty is uh, the... Um, what was I going to say there? Um, the... Uh, um, do, that, that other each country shall pay due regard to um, the activities of all of the other countries as they are, are operating. So that is just a, a general overview of, of some of the miraculous cooperation and collaboration that took place at one of the darkest times in history. And so fast forward to now when there is a strong desire to move away from globalisation on the part of the United States um, and they're champing at the, the bit in a way to free their, their entrepreneurs um, to, to do whatever they like uh, and yet they are constrained by the Outer Space Treaty and they completely acknowledge that they are. So I've, I've been to the United uh, Nations Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee and a number of people will be there again who are here will be there with me again in, in April this year. Uh, and it's very clear that the United States and, and all of the countries are there deeply respect the principles that are there in the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, uh, actually, a final principle that I should mention from the Outer Space Treaty is, is the need to supervise and authorise. Each country agrees to supervise and authorise the activities of its citizens, including the companies. And so what that means is, if you are Elon Musk or if you're a, a new space company in Australia, you can't just uh, decide that I'm going to go and mine the moon or, um, or lasso an asteroid or, or send any object into space without your, uh, uh, an international obligation 
for your country to supervise and authorise what you do. And that is the reason why we have national space laws in Australia, in the United States and in many, in many other countries in the world, increasing numbers who are now um, bringing, as, as uh, access to space becomes more um, accessible and cheaper, more countries are actually bringing in these laws. And so what, are the, what do those laws say in Australia? And interestingly, Australia's national space laws, which have just been updated last year, reflect, uh, interestingly, you were talking about culture. They respect, re reflect the Australian values as expressed in these laws. And the principles on which they are based, firstly, uh, compliance with international law, protection of the space environment, authorisation and super, um, supervision of all activities by Australian companies and, and uh, Australian um, humans, Australian people who want to engage in, in space, space activities, um, a reasonable and appropriate balance between uh, the activities of companies that might cause Australian taxpayers liability um, compared to the need to develop Australian industry. Uh, and so these are the kinds of principles and values. I'm sure they haven't always gotten everything right in these laws, but there is a, a, a strong desire to reflect um, those values in the, in the national um, laws that we have. And my own experience with 20 years um, working at Optus in a, a space operator uh, is that there is a deep desire amongst the people that I've dealt with uh, to be good space citizens whether or not the law requires them to do so. And that's of course not across the board around the world but my own cultural values in space were developed by my experience working at Optus amongst people who've been in the industry for 30 years and more and who are deeply passionate about protecting the environment and doing the right thing at all times. Um, in the last two minutes I have left, I will quickly mention the principles in many of our favourite um, space instrument, which is the Moon Agreement. So Australia is one of the only 18 states parties to the Moon Agreement. Uh, as a result of lobbying at the last minute, um, the United States ended up not becoming a party and as a result, many other... Most, most of the other countries of the world didn't sign. But 18 states parties have, have signed. Uh, and Australia is a proud member of that agreement and is, a, is passionate about actually complying with its principles, at least as far as I can tell from talking to the space agency. And briefly, I'll, I'll outline some of, the, some of the principles. It is an agreement that is designed around enabling the use of resources on the moon. It's not about blocking the use of resources on the moon, but it is about um, enabling the, 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 the resources that might be found on the moon and asteroids, other celestial bodies, for scientific purposes, for the benefit of all humankind, uh, and, uh, and with the desire of avoiding um, militarization of and, and use of military establishment of military bases on on the moon and, and on those celestial bodies and under that agreement the moon is regarded as the common heritage of all humankind a principle which uh, is 
a uh, a guiding force to the way the regime that will soon be well soon that is being discussed that will um, govern the international uh, governance of exploitation of resources on the moon. So just um, lastly, just to explain some, the way the principles work, the moon expressly permits the use, uh, the moon agreement expressly, expressly permits the user and uh, of uh, use of moon resources for the um, support of scientific missions. So whether or not there's a governance regime internationally, that is currently legally permitted by states parties of the moon agreement. So those that think that Australia can't participate in the space economy because it's a member of the moon agreement might be missing that key point that Australia almost can be using the moon agreement as a superpower um, because we are one of the only 18 countries that has in effect, express permission from the international community to use resources for scientific purposes. Um, and then lastly, there is a, a, an understanding that general commercial exploitation of those resources, so one might imagine for commercial purposes, uh, is um, b before that occurs, before that is about to become feasible, there is an understanding that the states parties will get together and create an international regime. And that um, regime, or one that, one that is similar to that, is going to be under discussion uh, at the um, United Nations Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Later in April, it will be chaired by um, a Polish man and an Australian man who happens to be my husband, Professor Stephen Freeland. So please watch this space. In April there will be at least the beginnings of some discussions around an international regime and I'll stop there. Thanks Donna, fantastic. Hope, hopefully you can all start to see, starting with Alice, uh, talking about black and white shadows, how we see what we're seeing, moving on to culture and the culture we take with us <coughs> and then Keridwin's critique on the intent and intention, but also then moving through to governance and structures around actually how we move forwards. Leaves us with Kerry. Kerry Doherty, we're very honoured to have Kerry here tonight. She spoke at our last event uh, in 2019. Kerry is an independent space historian, curator and educator. She is also a senior policy advisor with the Australian Space Agency and a member of the faculty of the International Space University where she lectures in space humanities. Kerry has written widely about Australia's space history, including written numerous papers, book chapters, and two books on the subject. Her most recent book, Australia in Space, was published in 2017. As curator of space technology at the Powerhouse Museum, Kerry was Australia's first specialist museum curator in the space field, developing Australia's first major space exhibits, and consulting on the development of space displays nationally and internationally. Kerry is an elected member of the International Academy of Astronauts and in recognition of her contributions to the history, preservation and public awareness of the Australian space activities, she was recently awarded the Medal of Order, sorry, Medal of the Order of Australia. So put your hands together for Kerry. Thank you.
And actually, I guess I should disclaim being a member of the International Academy of Astronauts. Um, I haven't quite made it into space yet, but I am a member of the International Academy of Astronautics. <laughs> so mo most of us are a bit more earthbound, but our, our, our heads and our hearts are in the stars. But um, when uh, Thomas first approached me about uh, doing uh, this talk tonight, he said, I wanted to talk about the past and the present of space and uh, something about ethics. And I thought, well, in 10 minutes, that's going to be a, a, a very big ask. So I'm partially reacting here to what some of my colleagues have said in their, uh, their uh, presentations this evening. Um, and I'd like to start by picking up from uh, Alice's interest in shadows. Because the moon is something that uh, every culture on Earth has seen in the sky. Every human being, every pre-human being has seen in the sky since time began. And we were aware that there was something beyond the surface of the Earth. And that moon, which we've considered to be a god or a goddess, and while many Western cultures see the moon as a goddess, there are others who see the moon as a masculine figure. Um, we've considered the moon to be some kind of a deity, but we've also seen the moon as an incredibly useful tool for the Earth, if I can put it that way. Because you consider at night, the moon is the only light that existed before the invention of anything more than fire. So before candles, before electric light, or even kerosene light, there was the moon was the only way you had light at night to move around. And so much of the activities of early cultures were based around the availability of moonlight at night. In agrarian cultures, um, you could harvest by the light of the full moon at certain times of the year. In hunting, hunting cultures, you could hunt at night animals that might only be nocturnal by the light of the full moon at certain times of the year. So the moon gave us um, a world of light and shadow at night to parallel the light and shadow during the day. And um, what was I just going to say about that? It's given us a way of not only dividing um, our days, as in the sun and the moon providing day and night, the moon gave us some of our earliest timekeeping. So the month, of course, which was that basic division of time before anybody came up with the idea of the week or a weekend, uh, was based on the cycle of the moon. Many uh, ancient societies based their calendar on the moon rather than the sun. And many religions today still use a lunar-based ca calendar because of that very ancient connection to timing by the sequence of the moon's phases. So the moon has been there giving us a way of thinking that we couldn't have if it wasn't in the sky. Isaac Asimov actually wrote an interesting um, article one uh, many years ago now, actually, which I recommend you all read if you can get a hold of it. It's called The Tragedy of the Moon. And he actually postulated that if the moon hadn't been in the, in the sky, apart from the fact that we'd have not have had those ways of 
timekeeping and such that we associate with the moon, we also might not have had an idea of um, planetary motion or possi you know, possibly even the idea of um, thinking that there could be anything beyond the Earth. Because when we look at the, at the moon, we can see something in the sky which is regularly changing and something that moves across the sky, unlike the stars which are absolutely fixed. You know, their pattern's unchanging over any kind of human span. And uh, I think that's quite an interesting way to think about it, that if we hadn't had the moon as a kind of example in the sky, uh, we wouldn't have had the same approach to astronomy, the same approach to our, our ideas of the, the depths of the cosmos without that example close to us. Um, <coughs> let me see what I was going to say. The, and those shadows on the moon, you know, the moon doesn't only create shadows on the earth, but the shadows that Alice talked about on the moon have become again, a very early part of human culture. Consider, and I'm sure all of you were told the stories when you were little, of those, those dark and light patches on the moon um, and that they made different uh, pictures depending on what your culture was. So, you know, when I was a little girl, I looked up at the moon and I was, uh, you know, I was told that that was the huntsman, the wood, sorry, the woodsman coming home with his pile of wood on his back. Um, yeah, other people say that there's a rabbit in the moon and the Chinese have actually taken that idea from their culture to name their uh, current lunar rover, um, the Jade Rabbit, their, uh, which is one of their particular mythologies of the moon. So the moon has been there in a, lurking in our culture <laughs> from the very beginning. And, it, uh, and because it has had such an... Actually, no, before I go on to that, I'm going to pick up something that Keridwin said about, um, you know, perhaps one of the ways to preserve the moon in the future is by getting us to love the moon. And I think, you know, the moon is already a symbol of love. How many, t how many love songs have we all heard? you know, um, about, that involved the moon and, and, you know, the honeymoon, um, how many were conceived under the moonlight, <laughs> quite sure many of us. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and it, it, it uh, you know, we, we have a love for the moon which is culturally um, ingrained in many of us and I think certainly in Western society we put this emphasis on love and the moon. Now, I'm not quite sure how we do it but is there a way to pick up that and say, we know, the moon is our symbol of love and so we should, we should love the moon in return. And I'm open to suggestions if anybody wants to, uh, to pick that up. And in fact, I think, um, you know, this idea of having a camera on the moon, um, as Keridwin says, it gives us an eye to keep, keep an eye on what, uh, you know, what the uh, corporates are doing up there. But hopefully it does also give us an ability to be on the moon when we can't be physically. Um, I think that is actually one of the things about the, the um, overview effect. Even if not everybody can go into space, the fact that we have those images that can, from space that can look back to the Earth and give us the eye, give us that feeling that I am, you know, we are there in space and we can look back and see the Earth. It gives a reality to that term uh, that Buckminster Fuller coined in 1963, Spaceship Earth. 
And those, you know, those very first images from the Apollo, uh, Apollo 8 mission, looking back to the Earth, um, the, you know, the very famous Earthrise mission and the later uh, Apollo images, certainly gave um, proof of the, the statement. And it is one of the, uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody that would argue against the fact that having those images from space were very important in giving the environmental movement its kickstart there in the late 60s. Because that concept that Earth is a finite system, just like a spaceship, um, is there to see when you look back and see that little dot in the great blackness of space. Uh, let me see what else was I going to pick up on. Yeah, the, um, you know, we, we've had some discussion about, um, you know, privatisation and what that could mean, the uh, corporates going to the moon rather than individual nations or whatever, you know, to mine the moon. And I think something we need to think about, whether it's the moon or the asteroids, um, and something maybe the corporates need to think a little bit more about too, is that, um, you know, will the first trillionaire be made by the person who mines the asteroid, you know, mines the asteroids and brings back 20 tonnes of platinum? Because if he brings back 20 tonnes of platinum, that's going to reduce the price of it on Earth. Um, you know, and this is the thing. I, I sometimes think that perhaps we... we worry a bit too much because um, all-out rampant exploitation is automatically going, well, not automatically, but over time, it's actually going to undercut the source of profit anyway, if you can bring back so much from space that it drives the prices down on Earth. Uh, now, I'm not an economist, so somebody can tell me that that's BS, but, um, you know, I just get, it, just get a, a feeling that uh, sometimes the, the corporates do... Um, hope for more than, in fact, space mining is going to deliver. And uh, I think we need to think, you know, for the future, the moon is something that is a part of the Earth. It's a part of our culture. How we go to the moon, um, what we do on the moon, is going to be very much a measure of us as human beings and what we have perhaps learned from our past or have not learned. Thank you. Thanks, Kerry. Um, Kerry was just warming up there. She can go for a, a lot longer, so we've, we've, we've unfortunately had to constrain her. <laughs> Thanks, Kerry. Um, now we're opening up to question and answers, so, and a dialogue. So I'd like to introduce Annie Hansmer as the moderator for the, tonight's, tonight, tonight's moderation. Annie is a PhD student at the University of Sydney's School of History and Philosophy of Science. She studies the intersection between theories of sociology of science, international space law and cooperative interdisciplinary space activities, particularly related to space debris. After graduating, Annie accepted a fellowship with a boutique wealth management firm in New York before returning to Australia to join Deutsche Bank as a corporate finance analyst, private equity and industrials. <laughs> in late 2017, Annie left banking to undertake a research PhD in sociology of scientific cooperation in space. And when not studying, 
Annie hosts her own podcast titled Space Junk, which has an international listener, listenership and features discussions with experts in all facets of Australian space activities. So we're very glad to have Annie here. She's a key communicator in the industry and uh, we'll leave it with you, Annie. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thomas. And um, welcome, everybody. It is an absolute honour for me to be sitting up here alongside my heroes and a privilege to be here guiding a conversation between us and, and between all of us here. So welcome to everybody who's joined us tonight. That with, in the spirit of the open and collaborative conversation and to keep it from going too far off the rails, I have only two guidelines for you. The first is to remind you of the grammatical structure of a question, which is that it begins with an interrogative, who, what, where, why, when, how, and it ends with a question mark. And the second is to ask you to please keep your questions to under a minute because we'd like to get through as many different ideas as we possibly can and together come to a new understanding. So I'm about to kick us off with that and give you the time to think about your questions while, um, while we have our initial discussion with a pre-prepared question, which I just happen to have. However, I'd also like to take this opportunity to say that if you are cold, which I am because I'm from Sydney, um, there are blankets and I have my spare jacket over there. And if you're cold, please take, you know, feel free to move around, jump around, get a blanket, whatever you need to do. All right, shall we begin? On Monday, I had such, such the pleasure of visiting North Fitzroy Public School and speaking to the Year 6 students about the moon. Um, and we recorded some of that discussion for a podcast that was released on Monday. So if you're interested, you should go and have a listen. But we asked the children, and we asked them to talk about what it would be like to look back at the Earth from space or to stand on the moon and look at the Earth. And they commented that, one in particular commented that she thought that the Earth would look sort of lonely and, you know, alone in space and that standing on the moon that she would feel isolated and alone. And so I then asked them, well, what would you want to take with you to make you feel less lonely? And they identified among, you know, among a number of landmarks, the Eureka Tower, Uluru, their own homes, and a library. And I've sort of been haunted by this because it wasn't the answer I expected on either count. And as I listened to, um, to Alice speaking, I wondered if what they were describing, you know, these young people thinking about their place in space, was some form of fear in the face of the ageless, that sense of being terribly alone in the split second that is life in the context of our universe. So I'd like to ask Alice first to comment on this, but also to comment for us on the items that they identified. What might it signify that these children chose not to take iPads and phones and, and computer games like Fortnite, but instead chose familiar landmarks, their own homes and a library? I do love the library, I think that's wonderful. But thinking about those objects, so landmarks are something that is about landscape and community. So landmarks are recognisable things that people use to find their way and use to focus. So one I love in Melbourne is the Eight Hour Monument. 
which, which symbolises so much. So I think there's something about familiarity and home and finding a path in a place where you don't have any other landmarks. I think that there's the idea of home. So, so the moon is not our home. Space is not our home. We take so much technology to live there. But transport your own home and then you have your place. You've found your place in space. And I think the, the library is, that, I mean, that's about community and knowledge as well. And it's about, I love the idea of, of, of the little girl curled up in her moon beanbag, reading her way through everything that is in that wonderful library. So I think they're so evocative, those objects and those things. But it also reminds me, um, like, there's been a lot of work done with, studies done with children and their knowledge of astronomy and the solar system. Um, and most of the recent studies are about, like, do little kids understand how lunar phases work and do they understand how orbits work? But some studies that were done um, in the two centuries ago, like in the 1890s and the early part of the 20th century, with children were also about that emotional connection. Like, little kids felt close to the moon. They felt that the... the, the the woodsman in the moon and the old woman in the moon and the rabbit in the moon were like their friends and were looking out for them and communicating with them and they felt the moon was a place that was really until they were about I think like eight or nine or something they felt a full moon they could just walk there like just walk into it so I think there's something about emotional relationships to the moon that come out so strongly in in what you found with your kids in this exercise I think it's wonderful thank you Alice um, I'd now like to ask Keridwen if she would like to comment on this and particularly to this idea that for children looking at the earth, experiencing the overview effect was a reminder of our fragility and a reminder of our loneliness in the universe. And that is a very diff subtly different interpretation to the sort of overview effect descriptions given by the first astronauts or the ones that are used to sell these idea of mass capitalist surveillance. So, Keridwen, would you like to comment? Is that working? Um, yeah, that little girl's a girl after my own heart. I think the first thing I would pack to go to the moon is a big suitcase filled with books. Um, and I know Alice and I have both done that desert island book uh, thing where you've got to think about the books that you would take to desert island. It would be kind of fun to think about what we'd take to the moon. But I'm actually um, a novelist in my day job and I do often find myself wondering what on earth I am doing up here talking about space with all these incredibly um, talented people. But I think what appeals to me about space is that at this point in time, everything we do out there is still speculative. So um, it's like a giant thought experiment. Um, and for me, a very deeply ethical one where we can kind of think through and step through some of these questions and um, use that as a way to kind of reflect on our past behaviors. And for me, that's exactly what it feels like to write a novel. Um, and for that matter, to read a novel. It's also a kind of way of rehearsing for real life. Um, and so I guess that's part of what I'm doing in getting up here as an amateur and, and feeling like I'm legitimate in having opinion. I'm hoping that everybody who's here, doesn't matter if you're an expert or an amateur or if you're a 12-year-old 
um, girl in North Fitzroy, I think we all need to see what the stakes are, but also feel that our voices can still be heard. And in terms of the loneliness and the solitude thing that she mentions, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the kinds of people who are attracted to going to space and going to the moon and the type of person who would be attracted to that kind of existential dread um, and desire for what they imagine to be solitude or isolation. Um, if you think about the types who are attracted to things like doing solo Antarctic crossings, for example, what would a society on the moon made just by people like that look like? And would any of us want to go and live there? But another more hopeful thing to think about is that we may have it completely wrong. Um, and certainly Annie's done a lot of work um, on Antarctica. And I know in extreme environments, it does attract a lot of loners who think that they're going to go to these extreme environments and be totally alone and have this you know, peak experience. But in fact, in those situations, there's a kind of um, hyper-sociality that is uh, enforced upon those people and a kind of mutual codependence that's quite radical. And I think if you're open to it, it's life-changing. You go there wanting to be alone and you come back realizing that you cannot survive without those other people. And I sometimes think about the communities on the moon that we might build. We may have it completely the wrong way. We may learn new skills and new acknowledgements of our codependence out there that we could bring back to Earth. And in fact, we may be out there and desperate for a bit of solitude because we would be stuck with other people, the hell of other people all the time. Thank you. Which now brings me to all of you, and I hope that you've been thinking and preparing your questions. Um, so if you do have a question or something you'd like to raise, please, I think if you sort of wave a bit, someone will have a microphone. Yep, we're going to borrow some microphones. While so you do that, let me make a, a quick comment. Please. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, it's just a fascinating thing that what the kids thought about was that isolation on the moon. Um, during the Apollo 11 mission, um, because Armstrong and Aldrin went down to the surface and Mike Collins remained in the command module uh, orbiting the moon. And all, you know, there's a lot of newspaper headlines back on Earth or, you know, commentary that referred to him as the loneliest, you know, the loneliest man in the universe uh, because he was completely isolated. Armstrong and Aldrin, there were two of them, so they were company for each other, but he was completely alone, far away from everybody, and at times actually out of contact with Earth when he went behind the far side of the moon. And yet he has said in various interviews that he didn't actually feel isolated, you know, that he, because he had a, a radio link, except those times when he went behind the moon, he may not have had anybody in the command module with him, but he was always in contact with somebody or could be in contact with somebody. So he never felt isolated in that sense, even though that's how it was perceived on Earth that he would be feeling. Well, and, and interestingly, when they've done experiments about people living in Moon or Mars habitats, simulated um, habitats, um, there was a famous one in Hawaii where people stayed, I think they were supposed to stay there for a year or more, and uh, they had to abandon the experiment early 
because of the group dynamics. They were going to kill each other. They actually had to stop. So anyone who's thinking about going to space because they want to be alone, forget it. Go to space because you want to be intensely social. That's really going to be the experience. I might ask um, Gabrielle, since we've all had a go at this, this sort of discussion point, whether you'd like to, and I wanted to, to mention there, when I was doing my research into Antarctic scientists and how they work together in Antarctica, um, step one was alcohol and step two was more alcohol. But the other thing that was really interesting was how these microcultures formed and I'd like to get your thoughts on this in a moment. But in one particular case, there was, um, the story goes, and you know, it's always hard to verify these things, that there was a base where they showed the uh, Colin Firth version of Pride and Prejudice all six hours every Friday night for an entire winter season. So you can imagine it's dark 24 hours a day. And by the end of the winter season, these scientists had formed their own society, which was this kind of interpretation of Austen's world where, where it wasn't so much that you'd say pass the salt, it was like if you would be so kind as to consider <laughs> availing myself of the salt, good sir, and that sort of thing. And when the summer people came in um, after the winter and they've been in this isolated situation, that they, they kind of, they found this group that was intensely hostile because of course they didn't know the rules. They didn't know that you had to bow and be introduced before you were allowed to ask whether or not someone wanted to get on the helicopter. So um, anyway, the point of that story, and I'm breaking all my own rules here, but Gabrielle, I would love to know in terms of workplace culture or organisational culture, if we don't want to ground it in a place, um, how do these cultures form? And you know, how, how is it that people come to form these ways of thinking about a particular thing, whether it be fragility or loneliness, or whether it is those sorts of people finding themselves stuck together and, and banding together in some way? Yeah, it's interesting when you start to dissect it um, organisationally. When, when we are uh, asked to come in to do an assessment on an organisational culture, we break it down into those two things that I was talking about earlier. So what is the, the system that has been set up? What are the rules, um, for want of a better word? And what are those behaviours and how have those behaviours come to be? And I think, um, you know, aligned to what you're talking about there, it's fundamentally repeat messages, repeat behaviours, shared background and shared experience. And if we really are looking to understand why do we have that shared background? Quite frankly, sometimes it's bias because we go and seek out people who are quite like ourselves. So if you think about a group of um, scientists in Antarctica, there's a fair chance that they have a fairly similar background to some degree educationally. Um, uh, and then they find themselves in this place and they, they get these repeat messages. And those repeat messages start to create their shared sense of value and connection. And then when others from the outside come into that space, uh, they can build up a wall around them because <laughs> they've now got their shared set of experiences, they've got their shared culture, this is the way that we work here, this is what we do, if you'd like to be a part of that, you'll do it as we do it. Um, and, and these are the things that I think are going to be really important when we start to consider how are we going to set a shared um, set of behaviours when it comes to space exploration? Because there is a chance there that we will create a community of 
similar pers- people, similar backgrounds, um, like you were talking about before, and then as others enter that space, is that really going to be a space that you want to be a part of? Uh, so uh, culture is fascinating when you start to dissect it and you start to explore what does it mean and how have people got those shared messages and was that intentional or was that by accident? Um, and more often than not, we find that it was by accident. It was uh, simply a repeat message that happened at a period of time and it's stuck. And unsticking is the tricky part. Uh, so being intentional about what you're creating is absolutely paramount in any organisation, in any community at all, uh, because unintentional cultures are the tricky ones to change. Thank you. Do we have any questions from our um, the people who've joined us today? Yes, we've got one up the front. And I think there was someone, yep, in the, the red cardigan. Very nice. We might start at the front. Sure. Uh, Donna, I think you said the US pulled out of the Moon Agreement. Um, I'm just curious, what was the background on that, please? Yeah, well, well, they never actually became a party, but they, they were part of the negotiating team that, um, and the, it, they agreed with it at the General Assembly. So the whole General Assembly um, uh, approved it. But then there was a lobby group, I think, was it the L5 group? Um, yeah, yeah. So there was the L5 Society, which was, I, I think they were actually um, interested in, were they interested in creating a community well, a on the moon, a space settlement? Yeah. And so they vehemently lobbied against it because they didn't like common heritage, the idea that the moon was and the celestial bodies are the common heritage of humankind. And they didn't like the fact that it was... Um, there was a principle of equitable sharing of benefits. And so that was regarded at that time as, as smacking of socialism. And so it was um, then at the last minute, essentially, they pulled out and then others others followed. But interestingly, in the most recent um, rounds of discussions at the UN, uh, there have, there's been strong interest in perhaps other countries, other spacefaring nations, including Russia, in maybe um, joining the Moon Agreement. So there could actually be renewed interest in it. And that may be because of the... Uh, it, it, essentially, the Moon Agreement is one means of getting certainty over whether or not you have the legitimate right to use what you extract from the Moon. So if you're going to spend a billion dollars in a, a mission to get to the moon and extract resources, are you going to invest in that mission if you're not certain about whether or not you own it or have the right to use it? And the moon agreement is one way of acquiring that certainty. So you can either go unilateral, which is the way the United States might be thinking about going, let's just go and do it and see who's going to stop us, or you can do something that has some international um, stamp of approval, either via the moon agreement or via perhaps a new regime that is formed um, pursuant the, to the talks that are going to be starting in April later this year. Thank you. Shall we head there? Did you have a question still? Yeah, I did. Um, this is for anyone who's got an opinion on it, really. But it's, I guess, how democratic do we think the culture will be in space, given that our experience today with missions is essentially they run in a very military command top-down kind of approach where people have to respect order. So is a future of space 
How does dem democracy fit into that? How does democracy fit into the culture of space? Would you like to take this one first, Donna? You're looking at me. <laughs> well, interestingly, when I was at the UN last year, I was uh, approached by one delegate, delegate who happened to be from Egypt, and he uh, had written a book about how he felt that the, we needed to completely reset the culture when we go to space. And so his view, I don't think it was the official view of Egypt, but it was the view of this academic who was the Egyptian delegate, um, believed that there needed to be a, um, and he was talking about a, a democratic style of cooperative, more cooperative culture. Um, but, and he did have his say um, at the UN, but it wasn't really taken up. So I think it wasn't taken up by other states officially, although people listen with interest. Uh, so I think in, in reality, the, the way that missions operate is going to continue to be a bit of a top-down um, operation, at least for the foreseeable future, in the way they currently operate, very much by people with spreadsheets and project management and chains of command. Um, but it is, um, it, it's, it's, it's up to really the people of Earth to make their will known to their own states and for those, for that will then to be made known to, at, at the United Nations, that's one path to, to and, a more democratic future. And just to add to that, um, I, I probably think that at the beginning of, um, well, not, it's not the beginning of, but as we move further into exploration, it will be quite command and control. I think it will start that way. Um, missions, particularly military missions, are running command and control ways. It's very hierarchical, it's very top-down, it's very power-driven. Um, many of the big corporations of the world are run in a very similar way. But that is actually changing as I think the um, younger generations are coming into, I can talk about it from a workforce perspective, where they're actually saying, I'm not going to be a part of something that doesn't have a clear purpose and isn't actually committed to finding better ways for the planet now and for the, for the universe more broadly. Um, and with more of that mindset and that push, businesses are now going, oh shit, I suppose I actually have to think about something that goes beyond profit and how it is that we're contributing and giving back. And in time, with any mission or any activity that occurs in space, I think that that connection to purpose beyond profit and exploration is going to be something that people won't want to be a part of unless there's a really clear sense of meaning. Um, and, and that is the thing that I think is really valuable to start to think about and to explore with um, the general public holistically. How do we create a sense of meaning and connection um, beyond making money and having command and control type missions? I, I, would, I would also add that a part of the reason for the command and control and the justification for it is because of the enormous need for safety in space and, and for um, a very methodical approach to making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed because um, it's, not a, it's not an area where you can afford mistakes um, unless you're specifically planning just to test and there's no humans involved. You do have to make sure that everything is absolutely methodically ticked off. However, the very command and control culture 
that is designed to produce those um, efficient and methodical safety checks can sometimes defeat itself. So, for example, in, in um, the, one of the space shuttle failures, I've forgotten if it was the first one or the second one, Kerry will probably know, um, investigations later showed that a number of the engineers were unhappy with the launch. They didn't feel it was safe yeah, enough. It was a and challenger. Challenger. And, and, and yet there was political pressure from the top and political commercial pressures um, to, to launch despite their misgivings. So had there been a, a different culture um, at the time that enabled them to, and, and had they been more empowered and enabled to speak up, um, perhaps that disaster wouldn't have happened. So command and control isn't always the safest way. As a millennial, I can speak to the joy of quitting a job um, whenever you feel that the purpose isn't quite what you want it to be. I'm going to throw to Alice now. Um, you'll just have to share the microphone. I just wanted to add a quick couple of things. I think there will be a critical moment when any kind of lunar population becomes autonomous. And at that moment, the critical decisions about what kind of society that will be away from the influence of terrestrial power structures will then, we will really know where this is going to go. But that's obviously not anytime soon. And the other thing I wanted to quickly mention here was um, the suggestion which came up in something our friend Elon Musk said recently, that the early labour force in space is likely to be indentured. We're going to be looking at economies and political systems run or supported by unfree labour. And there are many ways that might be, and we've seen how they've played out on Earth, and we've seen how they've played out in all of the interesting science fiction that has been written about this as well too. So that's likely to be the more immediate um, issue to deal with around how these things might play out, I think. So we're going to need unions. Well, ho hopefully there'll be indentured <laughs> robots rather than um, indentured persons. <laughs> but um, I think something we do need to remember in thinking about, uh, you know, whether or not uh, command structures allow uh, ultimately for democracy is that the missions that have gone to the moon may have used command structures, but they did so under a democracy. So, uh, you know, democracy was still, has still been in the mix and is still above, at the present time, the types of command structures that have been used, um, which are employed, as, as Donna said, essentially for, um, you know, for making that, uh, that safety and the efficient operation of the, the mission itself. Now, there may be a point where we find other systems for structuring how a mission is managed as distinct from the larger issue of how the moon is managed. Um, so I don't think we should be thinking at this point that just because the way the mission is structured means that in a command control fashion, um, we shouldn't say that that doesn't mean that democracy is there behind that. Um, you know, I just think we need to remember that, that it's still there. And uh, of course, is this on? Yeah. Uh, of, of course, there are because access to space is so much cheaper now. The the domain of first it was states, then it was just and it was only military the military part of states that that were involved in going to space. Then it was large corporations, but now it's small corporations. Now it's startup companies. 
now we've got, um, I have clients that are planning moon missions themselves. There are people in the audience right now that are planning massive um, missions to create solar power from space. Uh, there are, um, th so the scope for different styles of culture and organisation, whether for better or for worse, uh, is certainly there. Large corporations, small corporations. We've even seen a, you know, very small Israeli group send something to the moon quite recently, you know, with mixed results, you know. <laughs> An amazing achievement in some ways and then in other ways, um, uh, crashing well, on there with a bunch the of... There. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, everybody else crashed something on the moon, so that wasn't right. too bad. They that's got right. there. And the first tardigrades on the moon, which is... An extraordinary uh, event. A landmark, if you will, in the, in the history of our engagement with the moon to, to put tardigrades on it. We had another question over here, Actually, I think. can I just add oh, a, yes, a final please. comment? Um, I don't know how many of you have read Alfred Bester's uh, Tiger, Tiger. Um, because that, uh, and for those of you who haven't, well worth a read because it essentially postulates a, a future where the corporates have completely taken over and literally become an aristocracy. So that the, the head of Kodak, which of course is one of the huge companies, yeah, a bit ironic now, one of the huge companies of the future, he is the Kodak of Kodak. You know, so, and the, you know, the, the Exxon of ExxonMobil or whatever it happens to be. So, um, you know, that maybe that's a cautionary tale for, for the way we don't want the uh, solar system governance to go if, uh, if you know, the... Uh, Corporate commercial interests completely take over the exploration of um, and exploitation of the solar system. Well, I must say on that one, as a former investment banker, and my apologies to all present, um, I have atoned, I hope. Um, it was taught to me very early that the board's obligation is to the shareholders. So the obligation is to act in the interests of shareholders. And the interests of shareholders does not always align with the interests of the general public the interests of the environment, um, or in this case, the, the interests of the moon, not necessarily wanting to be populated with tardigrades in that particular situation. I will throw to this question over here. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, and I must say, I didn't notice it was all female panel and one of you mentioned it. So I think that sort of says a lot about me, maybe <laughs> than anywhere else, but congratulations on this. Um, my question and a sort of a comment, I suppose, is that We've got the International Space Station flying above us right now. It was put together, various different countries around the world. A lot of the modules were built in those countries and never connected to each other until they got to space, and it all works predominantly. It's also multinational um, uh, occupants. So my question, well, my comment is, well, my question is about what the legal structure on the International Space Station is, how much democracy has gone into it being built, run and operated, and also how that might be an analogue or a, an example of how the moon might work. It's a, Donna, I hear space law. I think you're up. Uh, no, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And it, it very often, you know, the same people who say space is a wild, wild west of, are fond of also saying that space is contested, congested and competitive. And it's become a a cliche at almost every space event. Someone will say those three things. But space is also extremely collaborative, if you want, and, and cooperative. And the International Space Station is a fabulous example of that. So it has been established by an international agreement. 
which has detailed rules about what jurisdiction applies in each module. And um, with the exception of the fact that China was specifically excluded, which is a bit of a flaw, um, it's an extraordinary cooperation between the United States and Russia and, and Europe in particular. Um, a bit of a shame that Australia is not part of it except indirectly we're, we're going to be starting to launch things from the International Space Station more frequently, I believe. But I think it's a remarkable example of international cooperation. And we've seen recently that it works when, when um, somebody recently allegedly committed a crime from the International Space Station. A lot of discussion, oh no, what jurisdiction applied? It was very clear what jurisdiction applied because of those agreements. So it can work. Alice, did you want to speak about the ISS as our sort of resident archaeological expert? I should also be interested in Gabrielle's opinions. But so yes, I'm currently working on um, an archaeology of the ISS and how the material culture, the objects and the spaces are kind of used to negotiate personal and um, community identity, how they used to create a society. So yes, it's a tremendously successful collaborative project, but there's also um, the traces of those, the, the places of origin. So, so the Russian modules are quite different from the US modules. And there are objects like uh, food, which is kind of traded for value between different um, nationalities and, and different kinds of groups. So they're like Annie's Antarctic example. They're creating a mini society there as well. But it's one where, um, oh, well, you know, people have stayed up there for a year at a time and at different periods of time where they're constantly sort of crossing over back with Earth. And the stability of that culture and the forms, like, like you were saying, that the accidental forms of culture they get that stick and stay there um, are something that we're very interested in and, and, and actually just a really quick example. So cosmonauts frequently stick icons, pictures of icons over the entranceway in the Zvezda module. And to most of the crew, they're just pictures and okay, that, you know, the non-Russian crew probably think that looks like an icon, yeah, whatever. But in actual fact, the icons reveal a really complex political relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church that isn't even noticed by the, the, the non-Russian crew. So you have a material object there that's actually increasing social cohesion between a certain um, nationality of astronauts. Um, we have told NASA about this, but not officially. So maybe we'll just keep this between ourselves. So, so, so in that incredible collaborative environment, there are patterns of behaviour that kind of emerge in the way that Annie and Gabriel were talking about as well. So um, if it lasts beyond the next, I think it's currently 2028 or something is the, the projected end date. Um, we'll have to see. It's not that far away. Have to see how those cultures have developed in the meantime. Gabrielle, did you want to jump in on that one? Absolutely not. <laughs> and that is a totally acceptable response. <laughs> do we have any further questions? In, oh, yes, we do, down the front here. I was about to jump in with one of my own and, you know. So many questions. But uh, what I'd like to know is whether the, um, you know, the International Space Treaties, uh, whether the uh, private companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, et cetera, are compelled by those treaties? 
Yes, they are. So, so one of the elements of the Outer Space Treaty is that, that every state, including the United States, um, so every state who has signed the, the Outer Space Treaty, and most of them have, uh, is obliged to authorise and supervise the activities of its nationals. So that means that Elon Musk can't just decide, or his company um, can't just decide, ah, I'm going to go to Mars tomorrow. Uh, he has to apply to um, the authorities, the appropriate authorities in the United States for a licence. And those United States authorities, despite their you know, current um, political assertions of unilateralism and so on, in fact, they are actually very cognisant of their international obligations. They're very keen. NASA and, and the, the, the FAA and the other supervising authorities are very... Um, very keen on making sure that the United States complies with its obligations. And so the licenses that they issue will make sure that the um, debris mitigation guidelines are um, complied with, at least internally, um, and that environmental matters are taken into account, that, that the spectrum that is used is not infringing um, international spectrum agreements um, by the International Telecommunications Union. So, um, yes, they have to follow international law, which flows down international law. The only thing that I find interesting or um, would like to add to that is they're also held to international tax law. And um, there's always a lot of energy and effort that goes into maybe finding little ways to consider how you can work around those laws. So, for sure, this goes back to thinking about the system and and the legal governance aspects of um, culture. Uh, but there's plenty of examples where we can look to international law and how you can kind of massage those. Mm. Yeah, of course there's going to be loopholes. Caridwen? Yeah. I think also then it puts all the um, emphasis on the US regulatory bodies doing their jobs and being empowered to do their jobs well. And if you look at their failures in terms of the aviation industry, so the FCC and the FAA, have failed, um, like the Boeing disaster we know was directly linked to regulatory um, oversight. And I think, you know, if you look at the SpaceX, the Starlink constellations, they're launching, is it another 200 every week this year? They've already got 11,000. They've got approval for up to 30,000 of these to form a kind of um, mesh around the Earth to provide internet to everyone on Earth, which again sounds great on paper. Um, but if you look at some of the unexpected impacts of that on astronomy, no one at SpaceX thought to ask anybody in the space science community, hey guys, like if we launch all these small objects into space, is that gonna affect your ability to do observations? That's what actually scares me the most. I would love to think that SpaceX is totally on it and on top of it. I would sleep much better at night thinking they've got the science down, they're checking in with everyone, but they didn't. And now we've got the International Dark Sky Association, the astronomers around the world saying, what are you guys doing? You're affecting our ability to know what happened in deep time. So, so much for colonizing Mars, we don't even, you know, we won't even be able to see our own origins anymore because of what you guys are doing. And so then there was a lot of backtracking by SpaceX and now they're not gonna paint them white and supposedly that's gonna fix the problem. But the fact that they could have done that in the first place truly terrifies me. I mean, it's true that any, any, 
any regulatory scheme is not going to be perfect and uh, there's, uh, can they do things with complete impunity? Not complete. Is it, are there going to be failures of regulation? Absolutely. Um, is there a class action by astronomers against SpaceX? Yes, I believe there is. So it might be interesting, or at least I think they're talking about it. In our last mm. couple of minutes, um, I believe we have two, and Thomas is starting to give me looks. But I wanted to bring us back for final comments and to, to stimulate that comments, I would wanted to ask about environmental justice and ethics in space. The students we spoke to on Monday overwhelmingly felt that we should avoid at all costs taking the mistakes that we've made on Earth elsewhere in our galaxy to other planets or to the moon or even to asteroids. And they were so strongly of this opinion that it kind of startled me. They weren't interested in exploring or, or you know, mining or any of those things. They didn't want to talk about diggers. They wanted to talk about the environment and our Earth and our obligations to our solar system and to the universe. So, on that note, if we could come up with something slightly hopeful to say, that would be really nice for all of us who are going home this evening and would like to sleep. Um, but really, I'd just like to, and I might start with Alice and then move along towards me and then we'll finish up, but how do we think about environmental justice and about ethics and about our place in space? Oh, okay. <laughs> this is something I think about a lot. So, um, well, I think, well, coming back to Kerry's mention of the 1968 Apollo 8 photograph of Earthrise and the impact these images have had on the growth of environmental conscious, consciousness, um, I think the views we're now having are changing. We've got the red Tesla that left the Earth, Elon Musk's symbolic act that left the Earth with the Earth behind us, moving away, looking out into the rest of the solar system. We're going to have the Moon Village Association's payload that's going to show us the Earth on a continuous stream. We're soon going to have many more ways of conceiving the Earth, the Moon, Mars, all these different views of space. And I guess, I don't know, I feel very optimistic that, even though I, like Keridwan, I'm very sceptical of the overview effect, I do feel very optimistic that people, that the people are thinking about space and wanting to make sure we get it right and wanting to make sure that we don't simply mess the whole thing up again. So I guess I, guess I feel we're starting to develop a new consciousness of the whole space environment in a way I think is very positive and I think you're all here because you have thoughts about that too and and that's fantastic. Yeah I'd echo um, quite a bit of what Alice is saying there because I do feel positive that we're having these types of conversations now uh, and we haven't populated yet uh, and from an environmental perspective what what I hope is that we recognise that just because there is this possibility out there that we don't stop trying to work on what we need to fix here. Um, that, that for me is a, is a huge priority. How are we all thinking about our actions now and not thinking that there might be some escape route? Um, 
but also I, I think we, if the you know going back to the question of um, I guess the environmental ethics component of it, uh, trying to get the next generation really actively involved in these discussions is imperative in my view and probably what's actually going to help us not take the mistakes of the past forward into the future. Uh, but it takes commitment and it takes attention um, and focus by people like Thomas that's working on these kinds of things every day and thinking about this every day because you have to actively put yourself out there to do it. We've all got uh, important things in our lives that generally take up our focus. So thinking beyond ourselves and thinking beyond the day-to-day -day is really what's going to help us to ensure that we're creating an ethical and um, environmental opportunity for the future. Hmm. <laughs> um, I know it might not seem like I'm very hopeful, but actually being in the company of these women and through the last few years, ever since I met Alice and she infected me with this bug, um, I have just been blown away by the people in this community who are doing really different and unusual thinking and um, I feel really lucky to be part of these conversations and I feel, um, you know, Greta Thunberg has taught us that it's okay sometimes to stand up and say, you know, there's no adult in the room who's <laughs> thinking about these things. And I think um, in that way we should feel empowered to also take all of those lessons that we've learned from climate change and sort of apply it before it's too late. I, I think um, the elephant in the room, which was alluded to by this question here, is, is, is is the United States and for me the question about whether or not we're hopeful and how ethics are going to play out in space is going to, uh, if not depend, it will be strongly influenced by their behaviour and so I, I perceive that they are teetering on are we going to just go it alone and ignore the international community and say stuff these international treaties, we're doing what we want or are they going to say well as much as we like to say that, really, we, we actually do want to stick with a rules-based order. Uh, we don't want everybody... We, we can see the advantage of having... If, if we go off and do what we want, then everybody else is going to do what they want and that's going to hurt us ultimately. And the United States has an awful lot to lose if people stop following the rules in space. There are rules. If people stop following them... In fact, we could ruin space entirely and no-one will be able to play. And no-one relies on space... Um, more than the United States and particularly the United States military. So their entire military advantage, bizarrely, relies on international cooperation. So my weirdly hopeful view because of that, which it's funny to go via that, isn't it? The, the, we rely on the fact that the United States military uses space. It's going to give them a huge incentive to realise actually we have to cooperate with everyone on Earth. We have to um, maintain, even though we're tempted to move away from the Outer Space Treaty, um, which bans national appropriation, we're going to have to stick with it because otherwise no one will play with other rules and then no one will be able to play at all in space. So if we don't play by the rules, no one's going to play at all. And I think that is, for a weird reason, the reason why we have... Um, reason to be 
to be hopeful. It's because of those precious treaties, which I actually do hold very dear, um, which are examples of cooperation and not competition. So that's my view. Well, I'm an eternal optimist anyway. Um, but, of course, most of my favourite points have already been covered by everyone before me. So I'm actually going to uh, finish with a bit of an anecdote. Um, when Annie first was talking to me about planning this um, interview with the, uh, the six-class kids, I told her about uh, something I was involved in back in uh, the early 1990s, which was an essay competition through the Institution of Engineers. And at that time, um, the national competition topic was, um, you know, what, what could Australia do in space or what would be the future of exploring um, the moon and the asteroids and so forth. And a curious number of the responses to that were that we should turn the asteroids into penal colonies. And, you know, I was quite gobsmacked <laughs> by that response. And so it didn't even come, like, from one school. It, it, was, it was quite a widespread result, so, which was quite perplexing. And so I think it is incredibly hopeful that this time around, so 30 years later, it is actually about 30 years later, the response we've had from kids of that same age is that they're not thinking about penal colonies on the moon or the asteroids. They're thinking about environmental justice and, um, you know, how we're really going to uh, utilise space in the future. And so I think that's something to be very hopeful for because they're the ones who will ultimately, uh, you know, they're the generation that are going to be going out there and doing all of this. Thank you. Including Gabrielle's kids who are just over there. <laughs> who are, who are, we better ask their opinion. Who are, who are probably going to go to space, Gabrielle. I hate to tell you that. But they probably will. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to um, welcome Thomas back and close out that bit of the conversation. But of course, um, you know, feel free to get in contact with any and all of us at any time. Um, and the, the hashtag is Hello Earth. And so you can find us there. Thank you, Annie. Uh, yeah, look, if you would like to follow anyone on the panel, please get on the social media and uh, you can see them, see them there. And I recommend purchasing the, their books, uh, reading each of those. They're fascinating and more informative if you'd like to follow up. And thanks to Rami down the front here for covering with Space Australia. Thanks to the guys filming, Australia Space Association. Always good to have you here. And thanks to everyone here for coming. It's, it's an unusually cold night for February and you've all braved it out. <coughs> and we've had such a good time preparing this event and enjoyed that and had fun through it. And we hope you've really gained something from it tonight. A few different perspectives. And if you'd like to stay involved, you can reach out. We are sending this camera to the moon to live stream a whole Earth. That's a planned mission. And I think some of these conversations will wrap into how we do that in the coming years. So thank you again and please give a warm thank you to the speakers. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.